Hey everyone, you are listening to the Divergent Conversations podcast. We are two neurodivergent mental health professionals in a neurotypical world. I'm Patrick Cassell. And I'm Dr. Neff. And during these episodes, we do talk about sensitive subjects, mental health, and there are some conversations that can certainly feel a bit overwhelming. So we do just want to use that disclosure and disclaimer before jumping in. And thanks for listening. So Patrick, I kind of thought we could actually pick up today where we left off last week. And by left off, I mean actually what happened after we hit the stop recording button. Yeah. So last week we recorded with Thomas Hensley and we were experiencing things in the moment while recording that you and I were talking about afterwards. And I know you were thinking about that throughout the week and wanted to talk more about what was actually happening and how you were experiencing that conversation and vice versa. So what was coming up? Yeah, yeah. Um, before I answer that, I just kind of want to do a bird eye commentary, as I do. Um, one thing I've noticed, so we have now launched and we have a few episodes out and we're getting feedback and you and I have recorded. This is our 10th episode. One thing I was reflecting on that I think we're doing that's a, pretty vulnerable, and I think we both name that, but B, I think what has the potential to be really helpful for folks is we are bringing our lived experience, and then we're also kind of analyzing it or putting it in a frame from also being mental health therapists. But what we're also doing, this is the part that feels more vulnerable, is in the moment processing. And this is actually my favorite kind of therapy because it's so raw, it's so powerful, it's this is happening for me now. And I think we're able to talk about it in a way that's both centered, like centered in our experience, but also decentered. And by decentered, I mean bring in, oh, this is interesting from like a therapeutic psychological perspective. So that's the bird eye view of like, I kind of see that that as not the whole thing we're doing here. We're not just like analyzing ourselves for an hour every week. That'd be weird. But it's it's definitely a part of the conversation we're having. So yeah. in that vein, that's kind of where I wanted to dive into this. Yeah, I appreciate you naming that. And I think that's true. I, I noticed like there's a there's it's it's a complex uh, conversation every week where there's a lot of layer. Mm-hmm. And I can I'm always tracking you. Yeah. Which is something I, I don't know if I'm doing that out of like feeling protective of your energy or or what we're talking mm-hmm. about, but I did notice that last week. While we were talking, I noticed you stimming a lot more than usual. I noticed you kind of rocking back and forth. I was watching your face and your expression a lot of the time when I was talking. And this, I think that these conversations are so nuanced and complicated and layered and vulnerable, like you just mentioned. So there's so much happening all at the same time when you're trying to have like a cohesive conversation too. And like, I'm really trying to think about like, what am I saying? Do I, does it even make sense what I'm talking about? Um, is it landing the right way? A lot of analytics in my mind that are always kind of happening, which is basically every single experience of every day of my fucking life. It's busy. It's a lot. Like, no wonder we're tired. Yeah, it's a ton. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there were, there were kind of two things, two threads I wanted to explore. One was what you just named of, like, you were tracking me. 
And this is a really interesting, I actually think it's related to alexithymia, which is what we were talking about last week. I've had this really interesting experience of, I identify both as an empath and alexithymic, which is a weird combo, but where I'm absorbing other people's energy and I, I can usually like identify like, okay, this is what it is. And, um, you know, bring in my analytical mind, but I have a really hard time tracking myself. And I kind of think it's because I'm so cued into others along with like other alexithymic traits. Um, but what was interesting was we hit stopped recording and you were like, are you okay? And I, I knew I was like, I've, I've been sick the last three weeks. I knew I wasn't awesome, but the level of concern in your voice was like this aha moment of like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm not really okay. Um, and I've had that experience typically with my neurodivergent friends or my empath friends where they'll kind of look at me and be like, are you okay? And it hits this like kind of oh shit moment of like, I didn't realize I wasn't okay. And then someone asked me that and I'm like, they're picking up something that obviously I'm not fully experiencing or understanding. So that was one of the things I found really interesting about last week was just you were picking up things that I wasn't picking up. And I didn't realize till I had time to reflect on it afterwards. Yeah. And I know you mentioned to me that you also hate that question. Like, are you okay? So yeah. Yeah. But it's also interesting that you interpreted my are you okay like in a different way than when we would start an episode and be like, how's it going today? Like that's there's concern. Yeah, there's concern in your voice. I think I I feel exposed when people ask me, are you okay? And I'm not. It's like, oh, and maybe it's like I thought I was hiding that better than I was or someone is seen through me and they're seeing something I'm not yet seeing. And actually, I think that happens in therapy a lot for autistic people is when our therapists offer reflections that we haven't yet seen in ourselves, that can feel really intrusive. Yeah, really intrusive. And it's also probably the sign of good, good therapy. from your therapist, right? So yeah, like, it, yeah, yeah. That happened to me last week. Like uh, we got off our podcast. I saw my therapist a day later. She mentioned something where I was not recognizing it yet. and she was already reading what was happening in the moment for me as I was processing what she was saying. And she's like, are you, are you interpreting what I'm saying like this? And are you experiencing it this way? And I was like, Oh yes, I am. But in the moment there's like this layer, right. Of like, I am outside of this uh, experience looking in. And I do feel like it is on the verge of the alexithymia slash dissociation uh, mm -hmm. conversation. But I also think, Maybe that's so often how we move through life is where we are trying so hard to not be vulnerable and trying so hard to protect ourselves from how the world sees us. And then if we're really attuned and we're really picking up on um, these subtle movements and subtle gestures and expressions, and I think it even goes further than just being a trained therapist. It's like being a trained neurodivergent therapist makes it mm -hmm. even uh, like more in focus and clarity for me and for you it sounds like as well and i think that's what i was picking up on it's just like these little subtle things where i was like i've been recording with you for almost three months now and that was the mm -hmm. first time i had seen a pretty and i, I can't even say the word is not drastic because it's not drastic but it was definitely like there was a big you it was because you knew what to look for yeah yeah yes yeah so i'm curious what you saw 
Like, I mean, maybe you already answered that. You you saw me stimming and swaying, but like, there's something about my face. You said, I, or even you mentioned like, I went more analytic, like I went more cognitive. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was something in my mind is you had mentioned to me at one point that if you go really cognitive, if you go really analytic, that's a safe space, right? Like that's when I'm really uncomfortable. And that's when I feel really confident in myself to show up and talk because I can almost like, disconnect because that that part of the brain just takes over and I don't really have to drop into what's happening for me um, in my body or, or just emotionally. So yeah. I asked you the question last week, like, are you going to this place in your brain because you're uncomfortable? Okay. And you pivoted very well, like very like um, trained response of like, no, this is where I feel the most confident. And we're talking about something clinical. And I was like, okay, cool. Which like there might have part like that partly might have been true, but like I think you're absolutely right. It's a safe, it's a safer place for me. Um, and I think so. Here's what this is was kind of my aha moment after we recorded, and I was thinking about how I showed up differently. And again, I don't even know that listeners will notice it, but you were, you're you're very hypervigilant in your tracking, which I'm sure comes from honest masking, um, among other things, but. That was the very first time we've had a conversation that wasn't a one-on-one conversation. It was a group conversation. And it's so interesting. I think people do have such a different experience of me if it's one-on-one versus group. It's why I think is why I became a therapist and not a couples therapist. I work one-on-one with people. I show up really differently. Um, when you and I are talking, the analytical brain, even though we're recording for apparently thousands of people, um, the analytical brain is able to pretty much go offline and I get immersed in our conversation. And I I can't do that in groups. Um, rarely, rarely can I do that in groups. I love that you're naming that because it, again, exemplifies what you said to, to begin this conversation of like what we're doing in the moment of how mm-hmm. we're conversating and also how we're bringing it back with this like clinical lens to to dissect some of this stuff. And it's so interesting because in groups, I do exactly what I was doing last week, which is I kind of attune and track the people who I really care about. And then I'm very concerned about like how they're experiencing the group dynamic. And I had never met Thomas, wonderful human being. But you two had already had conversation before and some relationships. So I was like, okay, when do I talk? I I was feeling like we were, you even mentioned this, like it was very, uh, um, what's the word? Yeah, yeah, repetitive, and it almost turned into this like loop sensation uh-huh. where like you would yeah. talk, and Thomas would talk, then I would talk, then you would talk. We never had like you mentioned something that I jump in, then or vice versa. It was like very, uh-huh. uh, um, it was shifting and transitioning in a way where it was like very regimented and very mm-hmm. uh, almost rigid in a way in, in terms of like even though it wasn't being named. Yeah, and and I think that. I imagine this is a really common experience for a lot of autistic people. Like there's a spontaneity to one-on-one conversation, um, a playfulness even that I can tap into that in groups. And I think it is because I'm doing so much work in my prefrontal cortex to analyze the conversation. So I, I noticed this afterwards. I was much less in the experience and much, much, much more up here in my prefrontal cortex of I'd be... A, a, I was feeling a lot more ADHD and I was like needing to intentionally be like, okay, pull your focus in, pull your focus in. But I would be listening to Thomas 
especially to then figure out, okay, what is he saying that then I can like add to or because I kind of once we fell into that like circle, it's like, okay, so my turn to talk next. <laughs> and so I'd be listening to him, but I wouldn't be immersed in the listening. It'd be like listening to figure out what could I add to or what could I associate to from something he had said, which is a very different way of listening. It's not an experiential like, like when you talk, Patrick, there might be some of that happening, but it's more like I, I'm in it. I'm listening. I'm I'm curious. It's not like let me listen to then figure out what to say next and then script out what I'm going to say next in my head. So that sort of um, analytical, the mask, I would say, is so much more present in groups for me. Yeah, I think for me too. And it's not, I was doing a lot of that, like trying to figure out, okay, this is what's being said. How do I respond? Or what is, how am I going to frame my response? So again, that's taking you out of being like as present as can mm -hmm. be in conversation. But then there's this anxiety that creeps up in not being as present in conversation and trying mm -hmm. to like, because I don't do well with like structured robotic response. I have a really hard time thinking like, okay, point A is this, point B is this, point mm -hmm. C is this. I have to be very spontaneous in conversation to have it feel genuine and authentic and, and just um, to feel like it's actually a part of. Otherwise, I feel like I'm on the outside looking into it and I'm mm -hmm. not really um, participating as much. So it was very interesting. And I think that for me, you just mentioned like maybe high masking or whatever the case may be. I've always tracked body language and facial expression and everything. And in group conversation, it's so much energy to constantly oh, track yeah. Megan's face, Thomas's face, body movement, posture. How am I feeling in relation to how both of them are, they are feeling? And then I'm like, I don't even fucking know what's happening anymore. Uh -huh, uh -huh. It's it's really overstimulating. Like it's been interesting. It's it's something I write about, some think about, some just it's and and if you're doing an autism assessment, you really have to look at social skills one on one versus social skills in a group. Um, and the more I think about it, I mean, I think there's a lot. I think for one, it's the fact that there's so many conversations going on. There's so much unpredictability and spontaneity, and that's just a lot to to be coming at us, but it's a really sensory overwhelming experience to be in a group and to be, especially with that bottom up processing style where we, you know, we take in details, all, all the little details and then build up to a big picture. So the sensory and cognitive experience of being around all these bodies tracking, I actually don't think I track quite as much as you do. I think I dissociate more in groups. Um, and then taking in people's information, taking in the body noises, like it is a really overstimulating environment. So I think a lot of us enter some sort of stressed body state and it's really hard to be socially engaged when we're in a stressed body state. So I'm beginning to think about groups more through a sensory lens than a, I mean, and they're not totally separate, but more than a like social communication deficit. I think we're sensory overloaded in groups. Um, and the processing style and like knowing when do I interject and what do I say? And that part's hard too. Yeah, I think it's absolutely both. And it is the sensory overwhelm for sure. And, you know, I think I notice that when I'm out socially too, like if I'm with one person, hell of a lot easier to conversate, be quiet when I want to be quiet, know when to respond if I need to respond. But when you're in a group setting and 
you are having that bottom up thinking experience and you, let's just say you're in a restaurant, let's say you're in a, a bar, let's say you're in a loud environment. And then you're also adding into the mix people that are not part of your group. You're adding in all mm -hmm. the all the stimulation behind the scenes, the light, the noises, the other people, the other energy, all the things that are happening. And all of a sudden it's like, I will find myself shutting down and really almost having this like panic moment where I look mm -hmm. like deer in the headlight situation. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, oh shit, I, I really don't know how to um, proceed here comfortably. And I think this will eventually be a segue into a future conversation that we've alluded to many times, but that is where substance use comes mm -hmm. in for so many autistic people. Absolutely. Because it's like, well, at least alcohol will, will numb my nervous system and, and my yeah. overwhelm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I absolutely went to alcohol back when I was socializing. <laughs> back when I was socializing. That's funny. Um, but true. And because one, it like dulls the senses. So I wouldn't be sensory overloaded to like that, you know, liquid confidence. It is not always a good thing. Um, so the so the filter or the mask kind of would go off, which would make me more comfortable in groups. Right. Now, after the alcohol would wear off, I'd go home and like come through every conversation I'd had and like, I can't yeah. believe I said this or that. Um, but yeah, I absolutely think there's a reason that we are so vulnerable to um, particularly alcohol misuse. You think this is why like, and I don't, I've never been a part of this community, but I think that maybe it makes sense why so many people that are autistic or ADHD or, or just neurodivergent in general are parts of like gaming clubs where you don't really have to socialize mm -hmm. in terms of like actual communication, but you're yeah. doing something active yeah. and participating. Absolutely. Cause it's, um, it's parallel play, which autistic people particularly really like. It's interesting. I was reading through a couple's book that is supposedly neurodivergent affirming. I keep using air quotes and realizing listeners can't see my air quotes. I don't actually think we have social communication deficits. That was an air quote. Um, anyways, I just use an air quote and ADHD, bring back my thought. Okay, book. Um, so, our, like, was purporting to be neurodivergent affirming, but then went on to say, like, watch out for parallel play, like, as if it's a bad thing in a, in a diet. And I do think it's important if you're in an autistic, allistic relationship to make sure both partners are having quality time. But parallel play is a really meaningful, soothing way for us to connect. It's I think it's a, one of many reasons I married my spouse was we were really good at parallel play. We'd go to coffee shops and we both like reading and writing and we just do that for hours when we were dating. Um, so yeah, I think parallel play groups is a really great way to connect or even groups that have structure. So like D&D, &D, like my kids both love D&D &D and there's, I think, a lot of autistic people in the D&D &D space because it's structured. There's There's roles. There's rules. It's it's not that spontaneous thing. And that, I mean, I think we should be thinking about unpredictable conversation through a sensory lens as well. Like that, that, that sensory cognitive information we're taking in. Um, I've done well in book clubs because, again, we have an object that we are talking about versus just free-floating um, conversation. I still do better one-on-one, -on -one, but, you know, book groups or if I'm leading a group back when I was teaching. I led a lot of process groups, which is interesting. I would have struggled to be a member of the process group, but I can lead it. It is interesting. I think those are all really good points to the structure and the role and knowing that there's a common goal here. And 
I think it also takes pressure off of like having to be responsive or respond a certain way or, or tracking constantly. I don't know if it completely shuts off the tracking and attunement of terms of energy absorption from just mm-hmm. other people's energy, but I do think it alleviates a lot of the, the stress and overwhelm that comes with socializing. Um, and then I'm thinking about like, just conversations in group settings like that in general, when you start to notice where they are becoming kind of uh, looped in or not robotic and rehearsed, but really like uh, struggling with transitions. You mentioned struggling with transitions mm-hmm. all the time. So it's interesting because then you're starting to track like, when do I talk? When do I not talk? Mm-hmm. Am I being rude if I am about to say something? Or should I like wait and hesitate? And that process, right, that like, I know I'm making these motions now too. And like, uh, my stupid camera tracks my motion. So I'm like, I think um, when you're starting to do that, thinking about how much energy goes into that process, which might sound really simplistic for some people to be like, oh, when do I interrupt? When do I not? When do I jump in? When do I not? When do I stay quiet? When do I avoid like adding commentary? Just saying that out loud is exhausting. And then like the actual experience of that is even more exhausting emotionally. And it makes sense too. And, you know, we're not, we're mainly focusing on like the autistic side of this right now, but the ADHD side, right. Of like spontaneity and like, I want to jump in because I'm either going to get distracted or I don't want to forget what I'm going to say. That can be really challenging too. If you're trying to record a podcast and like every time Megan talks, I'm talking and that becomes chaos as well. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually, that's funny. I was just thinking about ADHD. And I think when I'm more in my ADHD self, it's interesting. Groups in the moment feel easier for me, but I have more rumination afterward. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, because I, I like, yeah, impulsively said things. And then because of the autistic part, sometimes I impulsively say things that are not context appropriate. Um, right. And, yep. <laughs> But do you think like when the ADHD part is more uh, prevalent that it feels easier to socialize in some ways? Oh, yeah, it feels easier, but then there's more shame afterwards. And so I think I think I even would coach myself to like, OK, when you're in groups, the, like I, I would do so much self-monitoring, like don't say anything or here's your rules for talking or like in class, if it was a subject I was really into I'd want to talk a lot and I'd make rules for myself of like you can only raise your hand three times like there's a lot of self-monitoring to control the excitement and the impulsivity um and it it is absolutely easier but then yeah way more shame when I'm more in my autistic part I'm pretty yeah I'm pretty disconnected and pretty foggy I don't really say anything like my parents have noticed that when we gather as a family and when we gather as a family it's a high sensory experience there's six kids um six adults wait eight adults i can't do math adults and kids and conversation and my my dad has noticed he's like yeah i noticed you you seem pretty you're just shut down and it's i'm just um yeah it's low-key dissociation and that's harder but then i'm not ruminating afterward so in my best therapist voice of what I hear you saying is both come with significant social struggles and Mm -hmm. challenges and potential aftermath and fallout. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for me, I've 
It's interesting. I think I've where I've landed, I've decided it's easier to do the autistic. I'm not in the experience. Now, if it's a group that I was really excited about and that like pulled out natural passion, I think it would feel good to be more in my ADHD part. But for most groups, my default at this point is the more autistic part. In my 20s, it probably would have been more the ADHD part. Interesting. I could see that just based on how you've kind of framed your day-to-day. And that probably makes sense in what serves you in terms of self-preservation too. Um, I find myself vacillating quite a bit. Like the ADHD part will definitely take over and be like, I want to be social and I want to go do things. But then I pay for it afterwards. And I think that that's a constant push-pull, like tug of war, essentially, of like, knowing that I want and need to be social, but also knowing that my socializing has significant limitations and significant um, ramifications. So Mm -hmm. I know we've talked about this before, like for both of us, just sometimes uh, discussing grief around socialization and connection, but Mm -hmm. it is challenging. Um, And I try really hard to... um, to not be that person that's going to jump in and interrupt and uh, with potential divergent flight of ideas. So I, I've really mm-hmm. realized, like we've both kind of said that most of our social connections and, and relationships are probably with other neurodivergent human beings who mm-hmm. get it and we're probably going to be thinking or doing the same things that we're doing in those moments too. Yeah, yeah. And I was just thinking of one of your major social outlets, which is soccer, which is another like parallel play experience. Yeah. And I don't have to think about anything there. You know, you have a common goal. You might communicate like based about like movement and possession and and whatever, but you're not like having conversations during games, which is wonderful. Mm-hmm. And it's it's probably one of the only places my brain goes to to just be at peace. And I mm-hmm. think that's why uh, this ever expanding injury list that I continue to accrue as a 36 year old is frustrating because. I am starting to have this realization of like, this is not a forever thing. Like you can't go play competitive soccer as you get older and you keep getting injured and all the things. But my fear and anticipatory grief is this is all I know to Mm -hmm. socialize Mm -hmm. in a way where I feel centered and at peace and without restriction or overwhelm. I think that's scary in a way for me to... It's also, there's identity there. That's a very complicated conversation, but like, it's scary because, mm-hmm. you know, people say, what do you like to do? I'm like, I don't know. I've played soccer since I was five. I don't know what mm-hmm. I like to do. Like, this is what I do mm-hmm. every week. So mm-hmm. it's challenging. That is, I mean, that's an interesting, I mean, we've, we've so many podcasts we could do, but like the aging process and being autistic ADHD of, and then when our, and a lot of us have chronic pain, I've, I've had chronic pain for the last 10 years. Thankfully, I've recently had some relief from that, but like, like I lost so many outlets um, that were really good for me. I would say good for my ADHD. Well, in my autism, I used to do HIIT training and I used to be really into fitness and I've kind of lost all that skill in the last three years when my chronic pain got really bad. Um, so this idea of aging, but then also just navigating chronic medical conditions that often come with autism and ADHD and how that makes a world that's already pretty small 
like so much smaller when we lose access to those things. Um, so yeah, the idea of like, if you've been doing soccer since five, of course, with part of your identity, how you connect socially, it sounds like so much, so many sources of meaning there. Um, that's got to be daunting to think about. I, I, w- I would say you've got, you're 36, you're young in my book, <laughs> probably got some time, got a few Hopefully, years. You. Yeah. It is daunting, you know, cause I've had some significant injuries, like, uh, tore my left hip labrum last week, tore my mm. right hip labrum five years ago. My so goodness. it is constant chronic pain and chronic back issues, all this stuff. And starting to think like, because I need intensity and sensation seeking in my life, where to replace that with, I think is also challenging. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know for a lot of you listening, socializing and just even thinking about joining a sports team or a group is so intimidating and can feel like that brings up an enormous amount of challenge and potential for for just being alienated or or having a lot of struggle in that that arena so i think that that could definitely be an episode where we talk about how to connect and and ideas for socializing and and just even if it's minimal but yeah it's it's daunting and what you don't want it to turn into, at least, well, I shouldn't say what you don't. That's a generalizing statement. What I don't want it to turn into is then becoming inactive because I need to mm-hmm. be active because mm-hmm. of how much, like, I was talking to you about proprioceptive, like, struggle mm-hmm. I have and, like, the intense overwhelm slash, like, pressure feeling that I constantly have in my body that I need to um, ground or regulate. So, you mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Mobility, yeah. fucking scary. It it is, and that's like I mean I know this isn't our substance use topic, but it connects. Um, that's when I fell into an unhealthy relationship with alcohol. Was when I didn't have access to. I used to do like an hour, at least four times a day of like re- really pretty intense um, training. And once I lost access to that, like the stimulus seeking, the the endorphins and dopamine I got from that left me just. I think really vulnerable to then look for liquid dopamine via alcohol. So for me, my chronic pain and then my disordered relationship to alcohol were so related, um, which then, of course, that can set off. And I see this a lot back when I worked in the hospital. Like you see, and they're they're logical. That's what's so hard to work with them as a provider. You see these, I'm drawing a circle with my hand for people who aren't watching on YouTube. You see these patterns that make so much sense of like, Something happens, chronic pain, you start self-coping with something like alcohol, which then exasperates mood, which like, and then it's just you're off to the races running with a really unhealthy cycle. And again, for so many reasons, autistic ADHD, people are way more vulnerable to falling into those cycles. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that for so many of us who are constantly struggling with so much emotional overwhelm and sensory overload and just existence. Having that one thing to look forward to, if it's taken away for whatever reason, it's so easy to fall into these pitfalls of despair and Mm -hmm. hopelessness and Mm -hmm. reliance on substance or process because you're trying so desperately to just feel better for 30 Mm -hmm. seconds of your day. Yeah, yeah. It's really... um, it's quite the challenge and paradox too when you start to think about Canadian side, Northern New York side come out. Um, 
other alternatives because mm-hmm. like we're diverging so much in this episode. I love it. I, I, I think like, it feels organic. I feel immersed in it. Yeah. Do you? Yeah. I think this is exactly what we were trying to highlight comparatively to group yeah. experience. Um, I think about trying new hobbies at 36. It's not too old, like you just said. But I'm like, what the fuck do I like? I don't even know what I like. If, and I think so many of us struggle to say, like, these are the areas I feel really passionate about, or these are the hobbies that I truly enjoy, or the things that I look forward to. And for those of you who struggle to identify something, I don't think you're alone in that. I think it's really commonplace to say, I don't really know. And I also mm-hmm. think that's why we get so connected into online relationships and online connections because it just creates a little bit less vulnerability when it comes to socializing as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm like going back to mid-statement to respond to something you said earlier, not the end of your statement. Um, but I, I really like this concept, so I'm going to share it. It's something I talk about with folks a lot is uh, cheap self-care or like Glennon Doyle in one of her books talks about the easy button. Um, but cheap self-care versus like kind of really um, restorative self-care. And I think restorative self-care takes more time and energy. Um, it's going on a hike in nature. It's joining a soccer team, it's, which then there's all those you know social barriers. It's figuring out the hobbies you like. But it's the kind of self-care that doesn't just feel good in the moment, but actually restores. Cheap self-care is in the moment it feels good. Afterwards, it it takes a toll on you. And I think there's so many reasons that we're more vulnerable to gravitate toward cheap self-care. Um, yeah, yeah. And especially for the things you mentioned of it's hard to know hobbies in, in adulthood and connect with hobbies. Yeah. And connect with people. And connect with people, yeah. The other, can I... I know you have a different experience around this than me, but I was raised in a fundamentalist evangelical tradition. That gave me a lot of structured, both structured community, but also structured meaning. Um, I no longer identify as religious and am not a part of a religious community anymore. And I feel really good about that. But I miss the, like, I, I think religious was designed to um it was designed by humans to create community and i haven't found a good replacement yet and and i feel that especially as an autistic adhd 39 year old of like and and my spouse and i talk about it a lot of because we were both raised fundamentalists we're not raising our kids in a religious community thinking through where do we plug them into like a source of meaning a source of community because because we don't have that yeah it's a, it's a really good point. I think that structure is so so crucial. And I know we could I know you want to and we will do an entire episode on uh, religion and autism and uh, how susceptible autistic people can be to become parts of really structured uh, extreme religion too because mm-hmm. of the structure and the control and the and the consistency and it the, hits all the autistic boxes like all the autistic absolutely. boxes. But yeah, you're right. I mean, where do you plug your kiddos in and where do you plug yourselves in into the community? And 
I was I had a conversation on my other podcast today, um, the All Things Private Practice podcast uh, with a um, LMFT uh, licensed family marriage and family therapist in North Carolina about creating anti ableist practices, and she was just talking about like living in an ableist society. I mean, you're just going back to it over and over again. So, whatever practices we create or or you know try to incorporate, society is inherently ableist. So there are not a lot of great places that feel affirming and, and connecting and and safe in a lot of ways. So I think that becomes really complicated when you're trying to figure out like, where do I spend my time? Um, how okay. do I spend or where do I, you know, want to use my limited capacity and spoons essentially to say like, if I'm going to do something and I know it's going to take a toll, where is that going to be? <laughs> yeah. I mean, selective. We, I think we have to get really honed in on what our values are and be really selective. Um, it, okay, I realize, I realize every, things get compared to cancer a lot, and so I don't necessarily, I, I have feelings about bringing this metaphor up, but it, it's part of my context because I, I worked in oncology for a while. And when you are going through chemo or cancer treatment, you have to get so selective about your activities, um, partly because of how fatiguing it is, but also you have this existential, like, I don't know how much time I have left. Um, so that was something we would talk, I would talk a lot about with my patients of like what, and we'd kind of tease it out. Um, I, I use the green light, yellow light, red light system for this of like, what costs you the most energy and then what most aligns with, the, with your values. So for example, a yellow light activity costs you some energy, but if it's like really highly aligns with your meaning and purpose and values, like that's a good activity to prioritize. If it's yellow light and like doesn't align, prob- like that's probably something that can go. But I think thinking almost two tracks, I'm using so many hand motions. <laughs> it's how I talk. It's how I've always talked. But if we have like two tracks in our mind, energy expenditure and then meaning and purpose and are kind of mapping our decisions out that way, um, I, I think it's something we have to do because we we do have limited resources and and like you're saying, so many of the actions we do, we we then are confronted by an ableist system or society or community. I really like that. I like that imagery too because I think that makes a lot of sense for those of you listening and for myself too to think about when you're thinking about self-preservation and intentionality and energy conservation and the tax and toll that a lot of stuff takes on our, our systems to try to identify it in a way that is values oriented and acknowledging like if it is a high value and I know it's going to take energy, it's probably worth it. But if it's not highly something, not highly, if it's not something I value highly, then, and if it's going to take X amount of energy, is it worth pursuing or, or engaging in? And the answer is probably no, unless you absolutely have to. Mm-hmm. And we could, I'm being weary of time because I know what time it is, but we could diverge that conversation into something as well because some of these activities that are red lights, right, and they don't align are part of a lot of your day-to-day and daily necessities, like your job, but you have to go to, and survival. So it's that's where, that's like such a big existential conversation of then what? 
It, it really is. It really is. Um, so yes, yeah, so many red light activities go to survival, which is why when autistic people can make a career out of special interests or ADHD people out of their passions, like, oh my gosh, do it so that it's at least a yellow light activity, the year eight to five or whatever hours you work. Um, the other thing that gets complex, I, I work with a lot of parents and our values are in conflict with our children's values. So for example, I really do not like holidays. I do not like family gatherings. I like dread them typically for like a month before and fantasize about getting sick so that I don't have to go. I'm so sorry, my family, if you're listening to this. I do love you. I just, I, I, it's a terrible sensory. And I feel the exact same way. So if you're also listening, I love you. And I feel that way. That's real. <laughs> But my kids, I want to give my kids the family experience, the holiday experience. So there's right. plenty of times that I choose a red light activity for me because it's a high value, not necessarily for me, like I'd rather connect with my family one-on-one, -on -one, but because it's a high value activity for my children. This is really hard for autistic parents. We're constantly, um, like our needs and then our needs of our children are can can live in... Um, in conflict. And, and a lot of times we have to, and we should be choosing the needs of our children. Absolutely. But it, um, it adds a whole other layer that's really complicated. Your, your look is just like, I'm so glad I don't have kids right now. That's Megan reading me really well. Um, yeah, I'm not going to lie about that. I think that I would struggle significantly. I, I would struggle. I have a hard enough time committing to like things that I quote unquote, know what I should commit to, like mm -hmm. weddings, graduation parties, um, ho holidays in general, like all the things. And, and for me, I do feel like those are red light activities, but values coming into play, I know how important a lot of that stuff is for my wife. Mm -hmm. So I often will say, and she acknowledges this and she's listened to this podcast, so I know she's going to hear this, but she will she understands the mental exhaustion and sensory mm -hmm. overwhelm taxation that comes with committing to going to a family event. Her family is quite large. I mean, we're talking 50 to 60 people at most events. Um, lovely, lovely family, just a lot of energy and a lot of absorption. So I really have to almost mentally prepare myself for almost a month anytime mm -hmm. I agree to go to any event or holiday gathering or anything like that. So, but again, red light activity, high value system, because I know how important it is for her. So it is this like trade-off in a lot of ways in terms of how do you navigate the world um, and different neurotypes in partnership. And I think that could also be a episode as that, well. Yeah, we should absolutely talk about couples because in, in dyads, absolutely clashing sensory needs, clashing values comes up so much. Um, I actually, I kind of have a fantasy. This, this would be a group, so it'd be messy. But my husband and I keep having like really interesting conversations. I keep thinking like, it would be so cool to have you on and hear his perspective. Um, he's neurotypical. He's introverted, bless him. I don't think I could be with an extrovert or neurotypical. Um, but I thought it'd be really interesting for you to have your wife on and for you to have my husband on and talk about our marriages and hear their experiences of us. Um, that might be too much of a group for us to navigate, but I think that could be really interesting. I think that's a great idea. I, I think that would be very interesting indeed and give some perspective to our listeners because 
I think relationships for neurodivergent folks are is such a like you mentioned having neurodiverse affirming partnership books that are not really neurodiverse affirming, and then like we really don't have a ton of resources out there to talk about partnerships with autistic, holistic, autistic and ADHD, different mm-hmm. neurotypes in general. I think it's really crucial to have these conversations about what's what the messaging is, the communication expectations, how you're receiving said information, um, how you best receive information. I mean, I think all of that is crucial. So add it to the list. Our list is getting really long. I think that's a good thing. If we were both oh, sitting here, like, Megan, I don't think I have anything else to talk to you about. I think this, we could call it this a, a done deal. Um, but I do think this was a good conversation. And I like that you wanted to have this after last week's episode, because I think this just highlights and showcases the differentiation in one-on-one versus uh, group communication and socialization. So hopefully we were able to um, just kind of showcase that. If you were listening to the episode that we just did with Thomas, followed by this episode um, in continuation, I think you'll see quite a difference in, in just energy and conversation. And not to say either conversation was bad. It was just very different types of conversation and connection and energy being spent. (laughs) That was a great summary, which tells me you're getting ready to say our awkward goodbye. I am always just tracking time because I am appreciate it goes into things after this. So, um, yes, everyone, thank you so much for listening to the Divergent Conversations podcast. New episodes are out every single week on all major platforms and YouTube. Follow us on Divergent Conversations on Instagram, and we will see you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. And now, pause for a word from our sponsors. From new patients faced with an empty lobby and no idea where to find their therapist, to clinicians with a session running overtime and the doorbell ringing, some of the most anxiety-ridden moments of a therapy appointment happen before a session even starts. This episode's sponsor, The Receptionist for iPad, helps you tackle some of that pre-appointment apprehension and anxiety. The Receptionist for iPad is an easy-to-use digital client check-in system that helps your visitors check in securely to their appointments and notify their practitioners of their arrival via SMS, email, or your preferred channel. No more confusion, endless lobby checking, or having clients sign in on paper logbooks. It can even help you upgrade and update your demographic information for your clients as well and even validate parking. Start a 14-day free trial of The Receptionist for iPad by going to thereceptionist.com slash private practice. Make sure to start your trial with that link and you'll also get your first month free if you decide to sign up.